When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Good Music Podcast, a show where we discuss artists, songs, and talk about why we love them. New episodes every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Central. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook and become a patron to gain access to exclusive content. And now, on with the show. Welcome to another episode of the Good Music Podcast. I'm Lucas. And I'm Grant. And if you notice, we don't have Ethan with us anymore. Um, He unfortunately could not be on the podcast with us, but we enjoyed having him for around a year. And he really helped to uh, build the podcast into what it is now. And we really appreciate his time that he spent with us. But if you consider yourself a good music fan and a fan of the podcast, definitely try to follow us on Instagram and Facebook, and you'll get all the updates of the new episodes. You can request your favorite artist, and we just might have them on an episode in the future. But if you like your music like you like fine wine, to use an Ethan quote, <laughs> um, definitely go down to the description, uh, check out our Patreon page, and you'll get exclusive access to episodes early. And you will also get exclusive access to our patron-only segment on the Bad Music Podcast, where we talk about the worst songs of every artist each week. And this week, it is the first week of the month, which means we are getting into a volume two. And Lucas, who are we talking about this episode? So um, to clarify, when when we say volume two, that means it's an episode on an artist that we've already done and we're kind of revisiting them, either exploring a different time period or a different aspect. And um, this is one that I've when I first decided to start doing volume twos, this was one of the first episodes that I thought about doing. And I just kind of waited a little while to to put it in. But we're going to be talking about the who. The who. Who And um, specifically, we're going to be talking about them as a live group. Um, Really one of the greatest live rock groups of all time. And specifically, we're going to be talking about their legendary Live at Leeds concert. So set the stage, I guess, for those who haven't listened to the first episode, which they definitely should. But uh, what do we know? What do we need to know about the who to be able to understand the significance of live at Leeds. So the who are part of that original uh, British invasion lineup. So whenever the Beatles came over from England, um, they were kind of the first really international group ever, as far as just a band kind of coming over and taking over the entire uh, world musically. And so when they went to America and found success, Uh, There were several other British groups that came along to kind of get a slice of that pie, that American pie. (laughs) 
the the biggest example being the Rolling Stones. They were the next one after the Beatles to kind of jump over and and have big success. Um, some other uh, bands include the Kinks and the Animals, and kind of later to the game because all this really happened in '64. Um, in '65 is when the Who decided to uh, journey over from England and try and get their American fame, and because of the fact that they were one of the last groups to come over in the British invasion, it, it created some advantages and disadvantages for them. And we'll, we'll get into a little more detail about that when we get into the meat of what we're talking about in this episode. But mm-hmm. the Who, the classic lineup of the Who is, is four guys. You've got Pete Townsend on guitar. Mm-hmm. He's also the main songwriter. And uh, he does the keyboards and all the other yes. special stuff. Uh-huh. Although we won't hear any of that in these songs. Okay. Um, we have John Entwistle on bass. We have Roger Daltrey on vocals and Keith Moon on drums. Keith Moon. Oh, yes. Moon the Loon. <laughs> Man, I remember you talking about in uh, the first episode on The Who, how he was just crazy and wild and would play very uh, almost watching him was just as much of a performance as listening oh yes um so that's 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 your basic lineup and really that lineup would not change until keith moon's death in 1978 Hmm. and um they obviously have had a rotation of drummers since then and Mm -hmm. then uh john entwistle passed away in 2002 Hmm. so it's just pete and roger left although they are still out there playing music as the who we don't know uh if and when the end date is going to come but as long as those two are together the who is alive i mean i would, uh, I would say as long as pete townsend he seems yeah, to be Pete's, the uh, backbone of the band yes although i definitely would see that if roger decided he wanted to call it quits that pete would not want to continue because of just yeah. how long they've been together that's true Um, Before we get too much deeper in, though, let's go ahead and give our first thoughts. Okay. So, um, what are your what are your thoughts about the Who before getting into this episode? Man, okay. So before I did any preparation of this episode, um, there are probably three songs that I heard. Four, uh, Pinball Wizard. I mean, it's obviously you know a pretty big one. Bob O'Reilly, another big one. Um, Won't get fooled again. I think you had showed me that song like two years ago uh-huh. and said that. it was like the greatest drum track and Getty Lee wished he wrote that song. And um, I like those songs a lot. Um, and then obviously um, Behind Blue Eyes, because there was the Limp Biscuit cover that I really liked. But <laughs> uh, you hate that cover, but I think it's actually pretty good. Not only that, everyone hates that cover. I think it's great. It was, no, they... I don't know if I want to say it's great, but it's good. Uh, some magazine did a reader's poll to figure out what the worst cover song of all time is, and that was number two. Okay, what was number one, though? It's probably some other really unpopular band. No, it was Miley Cyrus's cover of Back in Black. Oh, yeah. Well, of course you're going to vote that, like, the worst, because yeah, but Limp- it's but, ACDC. But Limp oh, well, Bizkit at number two, that's still the second worst cover of all time. Uh, yeah, okay. But that doesn't mean that I don't like it. anyway. Um, so <laughs> those those four songs I was pretty familiar with. Um, 
But I'd have to say that aside from that, I'd honestly be at like a four because I'm not big into the whole British invasion. I mean, as much as I think that I am uh, into the British invasion era of music. I mean, there are some good Rolling Stones songs. There's obviously some really good Beatles songs, but the rest of those bands, you know, I don't pay very much attention to. Um, and I always saw them as very homogenous. Um, and I'm not saying this is correct or incorrect, but um, I always had the belief that if I were to get into The Who, all of the songs would sound the same and or boring. Um, and so I, I would first thoughts, obviously this has changed by now because I did a little bit of my own you know, listening outside of what we're going to talk about. But before this episode, I would probably put myself at like a four. Just okay. because I just, I don't, I don't know. Maybe, maybe my, uh, my dad has some influence on that. He doesn't like the who very much at all. Yeah. We, <laughs> no, we know about guys tasting music. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Okay. Some of the strangest decisions I've ever encountered in a person on why they like and don't like certain things. Usually if it's 80s hair metal, it goes and if it isn't, it doesn't. <laughs> or if or if it was a band that influenced 80s hair metal. No, even then. <laughs> oh. Cuz you could make the argument that the Who did that. Um, I probably or, or Led Zeppelin. Oh yeah, Led Led Zeppelin. And he, he's oh. not a big Led Zeppelin guy. I don't know, though. I'm, I don't I'm think really Led Zeppelin, Led Zeppelin was that big of an influence on 80s hair metal. I'm turning him around on Led Zeppelin. Well, he's a pretty big Van Halen fan. And, you know, yeah. Were... Yeah. Obviously, Van Halen is a big influence. I would say Aerosmith was. And um, some of the, some of the more of those bands, the ones that are less cerebral and less creative in the way that they approach hard rock. Yeah. Led Zeppelin definitely was more inspirational towards like the Iron Maiden and Judas Priest and yeah, that, that's the stuff that he didn't like. I'm I'm working on it though. I'll get in there. Yeah. Um, my first thoughts on the Who. So obviously, I had uh, I had done the first Who episode, and that was that was before I got super intensive in my research, but I still, you know listened to a fair bit of their music and had uh, discovered a lot about them that I didn't know and heard a lot of new music that I hadn't heard before. So that was definitely kind of my first foray into really discovering them and, and, and becoming a fan of theirs. Um, I really grew in my appreciation the first time that I did an episode of theirs I would say that I probably ended at a pretty solid eight because obviously there are certain tracks of theirs that I absolutely love. I think that uh, Won't Get Fooled Again is is one of the greatest of rock songs. Oh, yeah. Um, and many of their other songs also hold up to that level of uh, quality. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but getting ready for this episode, I really, really went in deep. Obviously, that has to happen whenever you make these ranked playlists. And I wasn't able to do their whole discography just because it was too big. It was it was incredibly challenging just with the because uh, I had to get at least up to who are you because that was on our previous episode, and that's fairly deep into their career. There's a lot of music up to that point, so that was a very daunting task. Mm-hmm. Um, but through that, and also just through doing some other investigations through some other mediums, um. I would say that it's definitely grown, but I'm, I am getting a little ahead of myself. I would say that solid eight is where I started before this episode. That, that's um, a pretty tough place to go up from. Yes. Uh, I absolutely understand and appreciate, you know, what they've done for music, you know, their iconic stature, their ability as musicians, um, the importance of their songs, what they did for rock and roll and for just popular music in general. Um, the Who are one of the great bands. They deserve to be in the same upper echelon as the top of the top. They're not just another rock group. I'd say that they sit even above the bands like Aerosmith and Guns N' Roses and mm-hmm. Van Halen. They, like, if that's, like, kind of the A tier, I think The Who belongs in the S tier. I mean, The Who, from what I understand, they're, you're describing them as being more creative. Oh, yes. And almost, like, trying different things so that the Aerosmiths and the Van Halens and the Guns N' Roses can pick apart what they liked that The Who created. Yes. So let's, so let's talk about, really, what The Who brought to rock and roll because this is also going to help to understand the context of live and leads. Cause that's kind of the whole point of this episode. Really okay. what this is, is it's also going to serve as our early years who episode Ooh. because this live at Leeds kind of came at the turning point of the who's career. Okay. Um, so what, cause all these songs are going to be what we would pick if we were doing a uh, um, a early years who song okay, or who episode so they came around in 65 really the the initial relationship was between uh, bassist John End Whistle and guitarist Pete Townsend they were um, schoolmates from an early age and good friends and then um, they had met Roger Daltrey by uh, joining his band. So really you could say that the initial founding member is Roger Daltrey Mm -hmm. because Pete and John joined his band. Mm -hmm. But you could say that the beginning of The Who really was Pete and John meeting because that's the oldest relationship in the band. And then uh, Keith Moon was the last one to join. He joined right before they started um, recording for the first record. But they that, said that really the Who didn't become the Who until Keith joined. That he's that he was the magic piece that completed that puzzle. And what year did he join? Sixty five. Oh, so they came over right away. Yeah. So I mean, at that point, it was kind of the 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 precedent and the um, the the way was made for them to get to America. It wasn't this really tough thing to do anymore. 
because of the fact that really 64, all these other British groups were going and, and there was a high demand. In fact, Americans were, were asking for more groups to come over. And so, you know, it was pretty easy for them to kind of just jump right into that scene, but they really also kind of came at the time that the scene was already beginning to change. So why was it changing then? Because the Beatles were already moving that sound forward. So when when The Who came in 65, what you could really, even though we kind of call that genre the British invasion, that's more of a, uh, a cultural movement. Mm-hmm. If you had to give a genre a sound, it would be what's called mod music. So okay. mod music is what you think of with like the matching suits and the heavy R&B influence in the music, um, kind of mixing Motown R&B with pop and rock, mm-hmm. which is really what the Beatles did. That was their the big thing about their sound was that they they combined all of those elements to make that British rock and roll sound. And so um, they the Who were never really enamored by the mod sound but they knew that that was going to be their best way to crack into the mainstream. Mm-hmm. And so when you listen to their mod music, it's good, but you can, you can kind of tell that it's not what they're good at. Mm-hmm. Of they, course, there's, they're such natural, great songwriters that even when they're trying to be in mod, they're going to make some incredible songs. Um, but so that's you can, why they have such a large discography of, Maybe not bad songs, but mediocre. Yes. Um, and I would say the majority of them come from this early period. Okay. Because they were they were trying to figure out who they wanted to be. Because they're really, if you're going to be a British rock group, there wasn't really any other alternative in 1965. Mm-hmm. But again, kind of right as they got that first record out and started um, and started getting famous, that scene was already changing. Mm-hmm. And of course, what every band, we talked about this in the Rolling Stones episode, what every band was doing was they were just trying to copy what the Beatles were doing. Mm-hmm. And so for the first couple of Who records, you can see them following what the Beatles were doing. They were kind of about a year behind what the Beatles were. So mm-hmm. you had uh, My Generation, the mm-hmm. first record, come out in 65. Yeah. And while it is mostly consisting of Beatles clone songs, there are elements that set the Who apart from all the rest of the groups. They Um, seem like they're heavier. Yes, they're heavier, and they had the best pure musicians out of all of these other groups. (laughs) Keith Moon was really the first rock and roll virtuoso player. Hmm. No, No one was a master of their instrument until Keith Moon. He was the first one to introduce... Um, uh, virtuoso playing. Well, because I mean, you think about according it. According to our music history episode, he isn't, but you know, well, to rock and roll, <laughs> yeah, I mean. yeah, and to popular music in general. I mean, obviously, you've got all these incredible people in jazz, all, uh, the classical, but as far as like mainstream popular right. music, I mean that that early Beatles stuff is just super simple. Oh yeah, you know, one note guitar lines. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, yeah, just no one played like Keith Moon played. And also John Entwistle. He really plays – he was the first one to really take the bass and make it a 
uh, a spotlight instrument. Uh, their song, My Generation, actually boasts the first ever bass solo. Ooh. That's kind of cool. Yeah. And, you know, just they they had a much stronger rebellious streak about them mm-hmm. than the other groups. And so just their music just naturally took on a wilder edge. Mm-hmm. So, like, if you if you were to say, because they were really the big three of, of the British invasion was the Beatles, the Stones, and the Who. Mm-hmm. And they each kind of had a different facet about them. Obviously, the Beatles were, were the nice guys. They were clean cut. They didn't say anything offensive, at least not in the early days. Um, they brought this this nice, pleasant sound. You know, stuff that your your parents would go, oh, that's nice, wholesome music. I will let my children listen to that. Yeah. Uh, the Stones were the bad boys, but they weren't wild, if you remember. Right. If you listen to that music, it's, I mean, obviously, again, they would evolve as um, as time would go on, but it was more about just kind of having a darkness to it. Yeah, they still they, seemed pretty tame. Yes, it was still slower tempos, more simple playing. It was, it was much more, it was the blues. That's yeah. what influenced their playing. What the Who brought was the danger, the the excitement, the adrenaline. Ooh, yeah. So really, when you think of the wild, chaotic, destructive rock band, the Who were really the first ones. They set that standard. Destroyed the instruments at the end of the night. Kind of. Uh-huh. Yeah, they invented destroying your instruments. And I assume that was the piece that Keith Moon brought. Uh, well, actually, really, it was Pete Townsend that started it. Really? Um, he, he was at a gig and accidentally broke one of his guitars, but he didn't want to look like he accidentally did it. So he just, cause what it was is there was a low ceiling and he like kind of stuck his guitar up and broke the headstock off. And so it was just like, well, I can't play this anymore. I don't want to look like I just messed up. So then he just smashed the rest of the guitar <laughs> and everyone was like, Oh, Whoa, what is this? And so then it kind of became expected of him. People would even give him guitars just so he could smash them. And of wow. course, once but once Keith Moon saw that that was an acceptable thing to do, he started destroying his drum kit every night. <laughs> there is even a very famous um, TV appearance where they play My Generation. At the end, they go through their normal, uh, you know, destroying everything. Uh, Pete Townsend stabs holes through his amplifiers, knocks them over, smashes the guitar. And Keith Moon actually loads his bass drum full of gunpowder. No, oh, and no. there's a and he puts way more than he should have because the original thing was they had planned to just put a little bit and make a little explosion, but of course Keith Moon being Keith Moon and yeah. having to go to eleven or none at all, yeah. he puts way too much in, and there's this massive explosion, and. Uh, there's there's parts of the symbol actually fly back and slice open Keith's arm. Oh, and um, Pete Townsend says that he has permanent hearing loss in one of his ears because of that explosion. <laughs> what year is that? In '67. Oh wow! So it would have been early in their career. Would it have been around this time that we're talking about. In uh, no. So this is a couple years after that. Oh. So Le- Leeds was recorded in 70, I think it was in 70. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was in 70. Um, 
so yeah, but yeah, they they pioneered that. They were the ones that um, created the idea of the the amp stacks, the Marshall amp walls. Oh, really? Because they were at the time the loudest band in the world, and they actually held the record for a while. I think it was ACDC that ended up dethroning them in the late 70s. That, that sounds about right, yeah. But they were the ones that that told amp companies, hey, your amps are not powerful enough. I need you to, to make us something that will really shake the venue that we're playing at. Because that was one of the biggest um, things that held the Beatles back from being an incredible live group is that they didn't have powerful enough gear. And mm-hmm. their fans would scream so loud that they couldn't hear anything. Mm-hmm. And so they couldn't play with confidence when they were on stage because they physically didn't know what the other person was doing. They couldn't hear the drums. They couldn't hear the guitars. They couldn't hear their own vocals. They just would trust that everyone was together. And because of that, that incredibly restricts what you can do live. You can't mm-hmm. improvise. You can't you know, do anything super complicated or technical because you, you couldn't hear anything. Mm-hmm. And it's eventually why they retired because they got so frustrated with it. And it was about the time that they retired that the Who kind of brought that that live sound. But by that time, they were also just in a different creative headspace that they were just like, it's, we just want to stay in the studio. It's where we work best. Yeah. But yeah, the Who were the ones that invented the loud concert and the loud amp. Man. I mean, they didn't invent it themselves, but they were the right. ones that the amp companies made them for. They they created that need. And they were also the ones that invented the uh, the hotel slash dressing room trashing. Oh, really? That was Keith Moon. That's That sounds about right, yeah. they. I heard Pete Townsend tell a hilarious story where they were late getting to the airport to go to get on a plane, and they had a show that night so it wasn't a thing to where they could afford to miss the flight mm-hmm. it was very important that they get there and keith moon says oh no we got to go back to the hotel i forgot something and they're like are you sure we're not going to get on the plane if we go back and he said no trust me we have to go back i i forgot something very important and so p was like okay turn the cab around let's go so they race back to the hotel and they, he said that Keith Moon got out, went into his hotel room, grabbed the TV, threw it out the window into the pool. And he said, oh, I almost forgot. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And then they got back in the car, missed the plane. Missed had to the reschedule. plane. <laughs> Golly, giraffe money. Well, no, they didn't have the money back then. Oh, my. That's, well... Okay. Like they burned That's... through money for the fur because of the fact that they were always having to pay for new gear. Right. Well, I mean, it like, worked out for them. Like Keith Moon would would buy expensive cars and get pictures taken with them, and then have to return it the next day because he couldn't actually afford it. But he wanted to give the appearance that he could. I'm I'm sure that Keith Moon's substances didn't help either. Oh no, he was a man that literally lived life. As full as it possibly could be. Well, that is a philosophy. Don't do so, that, kids. But yeah, so that was um, that was the scene of the Who. Yet, mm-hmm. and they were they were known as this incredible live group, but they they did struggle initially in the studio because they couldn't quite capture that magic. 
It sounds like uh, Kiss. Yes, although The Who was doing much better than Kiss was. They were still getting, you know, top 20 singles. Right. But they weren't getting number ones, which was even, you know, the Stones were getting number ones. The Beatles were getting number ones. Who couldn't, and they never in their entire career cracked the top of the charts. So they never got a number one? No. Wow. Pretty amazing. Yeah. They're one of those bands that you would think, oh, absolutely, they've got a number one. But yeah. Yeah. So the the first record is pretty much like you could you could really substitute it for a Beatles record except for the fact that you've got this insane drumming going on in the background and there's and there's just a little more um frenetic energy in it even Roger Daltrey sounds like he's trying to sound like the Beatles <laughs> uh the second record is a quick one and mm-hmm. um actually another thing that they invented was they invented the first uh multi-part uh, sweet epic. Ooh. They they invented the multi-part rock song where it's where it's longer than you know five minutes. And and the concept record. Yes, I assume was their, which was their third record, um, the Who Sell Out. Ooh. And that record, the whole concept of it is that it's they're they're mimicking a radio oh. station. Right, the radio show with with the weird cover where they have the beans or something. Uh huh. Yeah, and I they, remember they, seeing they that. even they even write their own commercials and little like announcements. Like it, <laughs> it legitimately sounds like a radio. Yeah. Program. Like they even do like the little kind of talking like, tune in to radio blah, 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 blah. now on to the next song and then the next song and they also were really smart to di- make the songs diverse sounding enough. To where it didn't sound like just a bunch of Who songs. The Who sell out is when they really kind of started to reach their songwriting potential. And even uh, Pete Townsend uh, said that he wrote a song on there called I Can See For Miles, which we talked about in the first right. episode. And he said at that time, he was like, that was the best pop song that I could write. And it should have been number one. And I don't it's know why it wasn't. Good. And I agree, that should have been a number one hit. It's an incredible song. I think it's one of the best songs they ever made. But he was just like, I knew that I couldn't write a better pop song than that. And so Mm -hmm. when it didn't reach even the top ten, that's when I realized I can't just chase what the Beatles are doing. Mm -hmm. And I've got to do something different. I've got to approach this in a different way. Don't tell me that's that's when Who's Next came along. No, that's when Tommy came along. Ah. So Tommy was the first true concept record in the way we think of concept records, which is tells a story from start to finish. Mm-hmm. No one had ever attempted something that ambitious before. It was it was very correctly labeled a rock opera. There were and, there was the themes and the uh Yes, the return like the it had an overture, like the first song is titled overture uh they even they even in tongue-in-cheek added an underture halfway through (laughs) and um like they had different themes for different characters and um they had this story they um they really 
crafted something truly large and epic in scale. Was was it perfected? Would you say did they did they get it right the first time, or was it kind of they got it? They got it really close. You can still you can still tell that they're they're experimenting with something that not only they have never done, but no one has ever done. And there's there's moments where they're just like, okay, this could have been done better, but it's still held up as one of the greatest concept records of all time. Wow. It's still what everyone kind of goes to as a benchmark. You know, it's held in the same regard as The Wall and um, some of the other great concept albums. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and that was the record that finally turned them into real superstars oh wow it was the concept record that was the breakthrough record for the who i mean again obviously they had been popular up to this point but that was when they reached the top that that was kind of like their 2112 moment where it shouldn't work but it did it finally yeah where everything tied together it was it was a word of mouth kind of thing or was it well i mean pinball wizard was a a great successful single mm-hmm. it didn't reach number one but it, right. i think it did reach top 10 oh, and um and then just it was very critically acclaimed like all of the like rolling stone magazine and all the were saying this is a truly great record you all need to go out and get it okay that does help <laughs> so it was it was critically well received you had a big hit single with pinball wizard mm-hmm and they also just they really advertised it and they did a lot of like they they did some some headline grabbing uh stunts like at performing it in its entirety at an opera house oh that is cool because it was a rock opera and they yeah. they didn't allow a normal rock and roll audience to come and view it they actually um had it to where a normal opera going crowd came in and and viewed the concert. <laughs> and so that was their way of, of kind of, you know, again, just grabbing headlines saying, you know, the first rock group to play in an opera house for an opera audience. When you do stuff like that, it's kind of the same thing with Deep Purple with um, at the Royal Opera Hall with the Philharmonic Orchestra. Yeah. It's one of those things that it's so outrageous that it'll make headlines and people will see your name and go, oh, I got to check this out. Mm-hmm. And so when Tommy exploded and be, and turned The Who into a legitimate arena-sized live group, that's where Leeds comes in. Ah. Leeds was really the victory lap of Tommy. Okay. It was it was the celebration of of their finally reaching the top. Okay. And really one of the most interesting things about um about that tour was that that was when Roger Daltrey really became Roger Daltrey, the way that we know him. With the, because spinning the mic around you, the table, so. Yeah, and also his voice. If you oh. listen to most of the early Who songs, you will notice that Roger doesn't really sound like Roger. Like, if you're if you're used to hearing songs like Baba O'Reilly and Won't Get Fooled Again and Behind Blue Eyes, like, he's got that very powerful, very gritty sound to his voice. Mm -hmm. You kind of, you, you picture him kind of in the same vocal league as say Robert Plant. Yeah. Um, 
just this, you know, very charismatic. You look at his image, you imagine him with his shirt off, long, blonde, curly hair, mm. you know, kind of a rock god. Yeah. He's, he was, really, he became that before even Robert Plant did. Mm. And and they, they both kind of, Zeppelin became huge at the, about the same time that Tommy exploded. So you had these two um, kind of examples of what a rock front man is supposed to be. But if you look before that, Roger was not like that at all. He was very um reserved his voice was a lot more mellow had hardly any grit like listen to i can see for miles and you'll you'll almost try to be figuring out who it is <laughs> it doesn't sound like him he's very much trying to sound like the beatles having that that nice very british sound mm-hmm. not using really any grit at all not really using the higher register of his voice if he is it's typically in falsetto even on Tommy, the record, he still doesn't quite sound like um, Roger. Mm-hmm. But it's on that tour that he really developed his look, his persona, and his voice. And then after Leeds, that's when Who's Next comes around. Uh... And that's, that's, the, that's on that record that's kind of the first record that Roger Daltrey just absolutely destroys vocally. That That's the, that's the culmination of what was learned at live at Leeds. Yes. Okay. That's, that's the first record that really sounds like the way that they sound live. That makes sense. Yeah. I, I did listen to that in preparation for this episode. I'm like, man, you know, if the rest of their discography is this good, you know, must be great, but I mean, obviously, that's arguably their greatest record. So, well, there will be some people that will say that Live at Leeds is their greatest record. Well, I mean, do you really count it? It's a live album. Yeah, and so Live at Leeds is one of those legendary, all-time great live albums. Mm-hmm. That was one of the albums that set the precedent for the live record being a serious output it was not intended to be that way um it was just something to kind of tide over fans while they worked on who's next mm-hmm. but it it has turned into not just one of the greatest live rock records but it even makes into the conversation of just greatest rock records period live at leeds is is a definitive statement in the who's discography yeah. So, well, you know, it's this isn't just a record to just as an excuse to talk them, about them as a live group. This this is a significant recording. It's it's very much a Kiss Alive kind of episode. Yes, or a Metallica S and M, where it's just it's one of those cornerstone live albums. So did they did they like plan this out, or was it just hey let's record us live and see if it works? Like, was this part of the mastermind of Pete Townsend? No, no. I mean, again, at this point, the live record was not this huge thing. Okay. Um, You know, it was at about this time that other people started to release live records. 
I mean, I would say that probably the only other significant live record before Leeds would have been Grateful Dead's Live Dead, which came out in 69. Mm -hmm. But, like, any other live records, like, look at Cream Wheels of Fire. Um, That's a a half studio, half live. Mm. So, and that's considered a legendary record and has some incredibly legendary live cuts on it, mm-hmm. but they didn't believe in it enough to release it on its own. It had to be tied with studio material. Mm. Um, like the Beatles never made a live record. Oh, that's true. They, um, the stones didn't do one until 1970 with get your yaya's out, which is, I guess you could say is another one of the early great live records. So, uh, so this one was kind of just a, a a turn it on, see what happens. Yeah, it was, you know, having the live record be a huge record was not a thing at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say, but of, of all of those early live records, Live at Leeds was the big one. So, I mean, people call it one of the greatest records now. Did it chart anywhere or do well in sales or... Yeah, I mean that was that was a huge record for them. Again, they were it helped that it was coming off of the success of Tommy. True. This wasn't a live record that that made them famous like in say with Kiss or Peter Frampton or or a kind of it or a cheap trick where it took a live album to make them famous. Yeah. Um but this album absolutely was bolstered by everyone wanting who material because Tommy was such a huge hit. Hmm. But then once people heard it, they realized, oh man, because what it did was it really recontextualized a lot of their early songs. I would say that just about every song that we're gonna hear on here is the definitive version of that song. Oh wow. Because we're hearing it really as sounding like The Who. And sounding the way that maybe perhaps it is intended to be listened. Yes. In, in a live setting. Mm-hmm. So, like, when you hear a lot of these songs, it's just like, man, this is the way the song is supposed to sound. Even the stuff from Tommy mm-hmm. um, sounds even better on Live at Leeds. Mm-hmm. Because just again, a big difference being Roger Daltrey. He just he he sounds so good at this point. And then just also you just you have that wild energy that they just naturally had as a live group. Um, let's talk about the album itself. Um, first off, in case you're wondering what's Leeds, Leeds was a uh, was a university in England. So they actually were playing at a college campus auditorium for this live album. Man, that would be cool. Yeah. Have the Who come play at TU or something. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Also, the original version of this record is not on Spotify. You only have the expanded edition and the super deluxe version. Oh. So the expanded edition is what we're pulling from and some of the songs that we're pulling are not on the original live at leeds vinyl right right so um because it was there was only was only 40 minutes yeah and the tape yeah and they and there's only two songs on the second side because they have that 
15 minute version of my generation on there. Oh, that's true. Yeah. So, I mean, there's only like, like seven or like, I think probably only seven songs on that live record. Um, there, and there's some, there's some songs that are on the expanded edition that are not on that. I'm just like, man, it really hurt that these weren't on there. Like mm-hmm. they should have made it a double record. Cause you're missing, you're missing a quick one while he's away. And I can't explain and summertime. Well, no, I think they had summertime blues on the original. Maybe not though. Um, you're missing great versions of uh, I'm a boy and happy Jack. Um, so definitely. And you, they also on the original vinyl, there's none of the between song banter, which I think is some of the f- most fun parts of oh, this yeah. I, I thought that's what made them seem more real and make it yes. seem like the, the interaction between the band and the audience was more than just hey we're gonna be up here and we're gonna play a few songs even though that's the words that's coming out of roger's mouth is like hey we're gonna play this next song you know there's there's almost like a humorous aspect to everything he's saying almost almost oh, yeah. like they're like playing among friends yes and they just they had a great sense of humor yeah they had great stage band you can tell that they didn't feel awkward yeah yeah especially during our fourth song there's there's a lot of just like it's if you were i guess um if you weren't used to maybe uh this kind of well okay I don't know. I don't know how to phrase it, but it, it's definitely different than what you would expect from maybe a clean cut band. Not, uh-huh. not only in, in subject matter, but also in just the way that they're going about performing the song. Yeah. So, yeah, it's um, I, I, I would say that the expanded version is probably the best version of Leeds, just because, again, you get you get some essential great live cuts that aren't on the original and you get that great between song banter, which I think is necessary Yes, for capturing the spirit of the band. Now the super deluxe version is also really cool because on that, they actually play Tommy in its entirety, Woo-hoo! but that's also a very long commitment. But again, like I said, I feel like because of the fact that, Roger has transformed so much in between then and Leeds from Tommy to Leeds. You really kind of almost get to hear a definitive version of Tommy. That's an interesting viewpoint. Yeah. Now, I mean, I do believe that there are some parts on the actual uh, album that are better. Like that's going to be the best version of pinball wizard that you'll find. Just yeah. because that was just so well made, uh, you also can't beat the the great sing songy uh, original version of Tommy. Can you hear me? Um, but songs like "We're Not Gonna Take It" and "Amazing Journey" and "Eyesight to the Blind," uh, "The Acid Queen," all of those songs in a live setting just feel so much better. Not just with Roger's better presence, but also just adding that that 
level extra level of energy makes it feel better and and fun and very laid back yes laid back but they still remain tight as a group which it's i think that this is the most interesting paradox of a live group that you could probably ever study because yeah really most of the time in a live group you rely on the drummer to be the solid one mm-hmm. even and that doesn't say anything about complexity because look at rush mm-hmm. neil Peart is an incredibly complex drummer yet he's also incredibly solid yes he's very reliable you he's he doesn't play wild and free mm-hmm. there's this there's this calculated precision with every hit that he plays. And so you can still use him as a bedrock to lay the song on top of. Mm -hmm. And that's not true with the who, in fact, um, Roger Daltrey has explained that the actual bedrock of the who is Pete and John, that the guitar and the bass. That's what I would expect. And he, he said, um, Roger said, imagine that, um, that, Pete and John are the sewing needles and that Keith Moon is the yarn. Mm-hmm. It's actually the guitar and the bass that are, that are putting the song together. And in a way that they're dictating how Keith is going to play that Keith actually plays on top of them rather than them playing on top of Keith, which is how most bands play. Mm-hmm. It's the reason why Keith's style is almost impossible to replicate because he somehow found that incredibly precarious balance of wild over the top playing that still somehow held together. Almost like the uh, drums were the lead instrument. Yes. Really, you could say that because even though Pete Townsend is one of the great rock guitar players, he actually doesn't play that many solos. He's not someone that's going to even, and even with his wild persona on stage, you really do feel like the drums are what's fully front and center. Which the drums are the ultimate, are the real lead instrument of the who. But he was kind of buried behind everybody. Yeah, so it's again, it's almost, it's very paradoxical when you really try and think about it. And the only way that you can describe it is just that that was their natural chemistry and that no other band could ever hope to sound like that. It was a, it was a once in a lifetime sound. And it could only be made by putting those specific four people together. It's the reason why they can say that Keith Moon was the magical piece that filled that band because he gave them a sound that no one else could ever dare to try and have. Well, I got a quick question before we head off to our next section. Yeah, yeah. Are Pete Townsend and Devin Townsend related? No. That is, this whole time, I thought you were going to say that. I just... I don't think they're even spelled the same. I I just wanted to, you know, because I don't make think sure. that I don't think that Devin has an H in his name. Does Pete Townsend have an H? Yes, H E N D. 
Well, that plus also does it. Yeah. Plus also, Devin Townsend's not British. See, these are things that you just learn on the Good Music Podcast, guys. <laughs> I didn't Never know both. if maybe it was like uh, relation by you know marriage or uncle no. or well, I no, guess that's, there's there's no relation there. If there is, I don't think they know about it. Okay. Well, I figured they were both like amazing musicians and you know just it whatever anyway <laughs> okay i think with that we can go ahead and uh, take a break when we come back we'll actually get into some of the songs from live at leeds to a little more about what makes this album so special so stay tuned we'll be right back Welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. We've been talking about The Who and specifically their Live at Leeds record. And now it's time to get into the six song segment. If you want to listen to these songs, down in the description of this episode, there's a link to a Spotify playlist that has not only these songs, but all of the songs from all of the remaining episodes. Um, we hope that you are going to go listen to those songs. And all of these songs hopefully will serve as a great introduction to what The Who is as a live band, as well as have a great flow from start to finish. And without any further ado, let's get into our first song, which is Young Man Blues. All right. So this is actually um, the song that um, on the original vinyl opens the live album. So is this the first of the actual performance? No. Okay. Because they, again, because they cut out all of the uh, banter, they could kind of create whatever flow they wanted. Mm. Um, but I I will say the weakest aspect of the expanded edition of Live at Leeds is that I don't like the opening song. Oh. Um, it's, a, it's kind of one of, it's a B-side of theirs called Heaven and Hell, and it's actually sung by John Entwistle. And I just don't think it's that great of a performance. So is the expanded edition actually in order of the performance? Um, I think that it's really close because you do have that song banter um, or that banter in between where they are introducing the uh, the next song. And whether – I mean you could make an edit to where a different song previously played and then you just inserted – the next, but I think that it's probably pretty close. Okay. Um, but I always feel like I choose the right thing because I I had I had listened through Live at Leeds and it just felt to me like Young Man Blues would be a good starter. And then after I had put it at the front of the list, I looked up the original version and saw that it was the opener of the vinyl. Wow. And I just find that those happy little accidents happen quite often. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Like when I did my uh, first Judas Priest episode and um, w w watched a live concert and they did the exact same first two songs that I did on my set. They they did their their concert opened with Hellion Electric Eye and then went right into Metal Gods. I was like, that's what I did on my set. <laughs> I mean... Opening with the Helion and Electric Eye is kind of a kind of a given. That was yeah, a but, but going into Metal Gods, is, I feel like would not have been as obvious of a choice. Oh, true. Oh, true. But, 
anyway, needless to say, we're opening with Young Man Blues. Yes, which is actually a song that doesn't appear in studio version on any on any uh, Who record. Is it a single? No, so this is actually a cover. Okay. And the unfortunate thing about this set, and I'm sure that you notice this, is that all of the banter for the next song is actually on the end of the song that you're listening to. Yeah. So you actually get to hear the introduction of Young Man Blues at the end of the previous song. Mm-hmm. And so that's when they go into detail. And so this is a this is a uh, this is a cover song. Um, I'm I'm pulling up the uh, the act. He says we'd like to carry on now. Play a song originally recorded by Mose Al- Allison, who's really a jazz musician, and um, he's also the uh, the musician that they covered on for um, their Tommy song, Eyesight to the Blind. Hmm. And um, he said, he said it's, it's ironic because he, uh, he wrote this song about being a young man when he was 40. And when he does that, Keith Moon yells, a teenager. Hmm. So yeah, so they, they introduce it as a cover, but this is, this is really the only place I think you can find like a, like an obscure demo version, like they were initially planning to record it, mm-hmm. but then just never did, yeah. and then just brought it back for, um, for this show. So if when you go onto the ranked playlist, it'll be this version that's on there because it's really the only main version of this song. Again, I was I was able to find like a demo version, right. but I mean, if I'm gonna pick between a fully fleshed out live version and a demo version, I'm going to pick the live version. Right. And also this live rendition just kills. Yeah. Um, I mean, first off, we just get to start off by flexing Keith Moon's drumming abilities. Yes. I mean, true. he, he makes his presence note with some incredible fills throughout the intro. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the band keeps up. Yes, right. some, they really, somehow they, they start and stop at the same place. Yeah. I, I, I've tried to think through multiple times on how they would know to do this, but he like doesn't slow down on the fill. It doesn't seem like it's at any tempo. Like he's just he's just free form playing, and they're they're ending at the same spot. And I don't quite know how they're doing it. I mean, they've been playing together for a little while now. It's yeah. Awesome. But- but still, that just again, that just that shows how cohesive of a unit they were at this point. That's true. They, and they I had, would, they had like a hive mind. Almost. Yes, you get that feeling that it's like, oh, you know, this is the part where we're going to do this very particular, you know, hit here, and then it breaks, and then Roger comes in with the, you know, the lyrics. Well, a young man ain't got nothing in the world these days. Yeah. And it is very freeform. Like when he comes in with the lyrics, he like slows down at points and then the <laughs> music will speed up. And uh, it's, it doesn't really sound very calculated. Well, no, yeah, it's it very much driven by feel. It's, it's okay. Maybe it, maybe it isn't calculated. You're right. It's driven by feel, but that doesn't mean that it's sloppy. Mm-mm. Right. They're, they're, 
in tune with each other very, very closely. It's very... like that song on Who's Next? I'm getting in tune. Right. It's, and it's... I'm tuning in right on you. Right. That, yeah. And it's, it, it is uh, ep- evident. That's yes. The that they, are, they... they are one of the all-time great bands right. in discovering that 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 sixth sense mm-hmm. i that's another that's one of the things that made queen such a great live group mm-hmm. is that they just they had that ability to just feed off of each other and to be able to instinctually play but i would yeah. really say that really the who were the one of the first bands to really walk into that in the rock world yeah i mean and we'll see more of it as we get through it sounds like there's some pretty awesome you know improvised jammy moments uh-huh. that maybe don't deviate too far but it there's no way that you know there's seven eight minute long songs you know originally are, yeah like you can tell that they they know what sections they want to go to but that it might be up in the air just how long they're going to stay on it you know, am I going to play a solo here or am I just going to play some licks? Right. Um, you can tell that it's just that they're that they're leaving it open to for the music to take them wherever that wants to go. And right. that they're good enough musicians and, and locked in with each other enough that they're all able to think in the same direction. And they put on such a good show that the audience just is going to eat it up mm-hmm. and enjoy themselves, you know, listen to their music. Yeah. And watching them go crazy. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like that. The whole middle section of this song, you can tell, is is improvised. Mm-hmm. You know, right. even even with what Roger's singing, um, kind of when he when he's ad libbing that everybody knows, everybody knows. It it does really get very Robert Planty. Yeah, it now, sounds this, pretty good. At this point, Led Zeppelin was a huge group. The I would say probably at this point even Led Zeppelin 3 was out. Mm. So mm-hmm. you can tell that he's he's taking cues from him, but he's still doing it his way. Right. So right. um I just felt like this was a this was a great song to just introduce the ethos of who the who is as a band <laughs> as well as just it just is a really rocking way. Mm-hmm. To just jump right into this, this yeah. Set. You showcase everybody. You got the crazy Keith Moon drumming. You got the really active bass line. That really intricate guitar riff, and the great Roger Daltrey vocals. You yeah. know, over it all. Yeah, I think that I think this is a really great introduction for the band. Yeah, you you get that great moment at the end. They ain't got nothing. Ain't got sweet f all. <laughs> You know, so, and then and then yeah, we get a I I maybe my favorite stage banter of the whole set where they're introducing the little medley that they're about to do with oh, uh, right. with substitute Happy Jack and I'm a boy mm-hmm. when he's when he goes that was our first number eleven <laughs> yeah and this that was our yeah. first number one in Germany yeah and, and this uh, was our first number one in England for I think half an hour we're. We're going to do, uh, this might be a song later, but we're going to do uh, three hit songs, uh, the three easiest. Uh, uh-huh. 
And so that's yeah. actually Pete Townsend talking during that section. Oh, really? So he's that I had the feeling that it yeah. was it, but um, so I I couldn't explain why. I just I can't explain why. <laughs> oh, what a great! I was I was gonna do it for you, but thinking you did it on accident. But then I did do it on accident. But then you caught yourself. <laughs> but I can't explain it. I I knew that that was Pete Townsend introducing everything. Anyway. Can't explain. Yeah, yeah. So that goes into our second song. I can't explain. So yes. let me know what was the purpose. What was your purpose of putting this here on the set? Well, first off, I just really liked the song, and I felt like it was a good song to keep the momentum moving forward. Plus, also, this just in of itself is an incredibly significant Who song, and I wanted to have the opportunity to talk about it. Okay. This was actually the first ever Who song to be released. Oh. So this this was their first single. The leading single for the first album. Well, it actually wasn't even on the first album. Oh, it was. This was just a standalone single. That is, that's real early then. Wow. And I would say that this is about one of the best songs of their early period. And I think that it actually might be one of the best songs of the mod movement. I think that this song can stand up to most of the great Beatles songs that were mm -hmm. written in the beginning of their period. It does sound pretty mod. And so um, I just... The funny thing is, is that this song was written about Pete's insecurity about writing a hit. <laughs> He's, he was trying to write something that would connect to people, to the young audiences. And he just, he had this feeling that he couldn't explain what he was feeling. And then he was just like, well, I can just write about how I can't explain. Ooh, he did a, he did a 25 or six to four. Yeah. Those was, songs are always was, great. It was meta. Very meta. Is catch thirty three. Uh huh. So yeah, so that's that's what the song is about. It's just about, and really, that would become a a long standing trend in the types of songs that he would write. I mean, that's the whole concept around Tommy is about this kid who's deaf, dumb, and blind and can't communicate. He can't, he can't interact with the outside world. You could really say that that's the ultimate form of someone who can't explain. Yeah. Um, and I mean, you just, you look at a lot of their big songs and they kind of carry that, that theme. So you can see that even in this first song that this, that this idea was something that was always going to be on Pete's mind. I mean, that's also their, their other big rock opera, Quadrophenia takes that again to a certain extent because that whole album is about someone who has uh, schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. He's called quadrophenia because he's got four distinct personalities. Mm. And so um, and so that's someone else that also can't adequately explain what they're feeling, what they're going through because he's got these multiple personalities that are constantly warring inside of him. Wow. So really, you could say that this is the song that set the standard for most of what the Who was going to write about. So this is a this is quite a significant song in its in its meaning and its importance, and also it's just a great rock pop song. It's got some tight harmonies there for yeah. live harmony. They are they're locked in. So um, John Entwistle also did a lot of vocal work mm -hmm. for them. He actually has quite a low voice, 
especially when you hear his talking voice, it's very deep and very powerful. Mm-hmm. But yet he actually does quite a bit of high harmonies for the group. That's a that's an Axl Rose thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, it's always the guys with the the really deep, you know. Oh, trust me, you <laughs> you probably don't even realize how deep his voice is. It's it sounds like it's pitch modulated when he talks, like uh, uh, James Earl Jones. Yes, it's that <laughs> level of deep. Wow. Oh my. But yet, like, um, and I, and again, I didn't know this until I started watching some live videos. Is that he was doing those high harmonies a lot of the time, man, and was just an overall a really great singer. I think he was really underrated. Again, I kind of bashed him on his Heaven and Hell performance, but there are some other songs like he's the one that sings "My Wife" on uh, "Who's Next." Mm-hmm. That's that's his turn on the lead vocal on that record. Hmm. Did. Did he always have that moment every record, or was that? Uh, not every record, but he 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 did it more um, in the earlier records, and then when Pete Townsend really started to take control of the songwriting, then mm-hmm. that's kind of when he more relegated him to just playing bass and doing background vocals. Was usually, that... usually John Entwistle sang lead if he wrote the song. Was that take control in a uh, micromanaging way or take control as in take the reins and really guide the band to something? Take the reins and guide because, again, once they started to get into like these heavy concept records, I mean, Pete was writing the majority of it and they all trusted that he was going to to steer them in the right direction. It seems like he did. He did. Yeah, he absolutely did. Well. So, can't explain, but uh-huh. he just has that ability. So, um, so what what were your opinions about this song? Uh, definitely the the harmonies were like the things that I kept picking up on because it it keeps coming in with that throughout the song. You know, yeah, it's it's. I found that I just kept as the day would go on, I'd just be like, mm, can't explain. Yeah, yeah. It's like that's. I think that's like the point of the song is for it to be very bubblegummy. Yeah, you know, but, almost like with our Muse episode where we had um, Bliss right after Newborn. Uh-huh. Where Newborn was like this kind of crazy, you know, very out there um, arrangement, and Bliss was much simpler. I think that's kind of the same thing. At least that's what my ear picked up on. The same yeah. thing was happening here. Um, uh-huh. That young young man blues was very out there. You know, um, tempo changes all over the place, and definitely some theatrical performance aspects going on um whereas can't can't explain it's kind of dialed back and maybe it's not dialed back in a bad way it's dialed back so the band can almost kind of have like a moment to relax but Mm -hmm. still put out some good sounding stuff for the audience yeah um the chorus i think is is really interesting in this song Mm -hmm. because again think back to the fact that this um, was the first thing that the Who had released. This was when when this was released. Mod music was still very much in that Beatlemania sound. To have something where the drums are really the lead instrument of that chorus, because he plays a little more straight during the verses, but the chorus is the. That's true. Like that would have been a incredibly eye opening thing for 1965. Wow, yeah. 
So that was that was kind of a revolutionary way of constructing a chorus around pretty much a giant drum fill. And the way that, and I never had keyed into this until Roger had pointed it out once that really what he did was he constructed his drum parts around the vocals, which yeah. he he he's hitting his rather than following what the guitar or bass is doing as much, he's following what the vocals are doing. That can explain and then just adding little flourishes in, but he's measuring his rhythm around what the vocal melody is doing. That's a good that is a that is an astute observation. Which is what makes his drumming sound so much like a lead part because he's mm-hmm. following the other lead part, which is the vocals. And he's letting the guitar and the bass provide the the structure and the and the foundation. And that... it, it makes them sound more tight and more maybe technical than they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because again, you, you take away the drums, the, the song is incredibly simple. It's the drums that kind of yeah. that extra level of excitement. Yeah, just just imagining it with an ACDC beat, not to bash on ACDC, but imagining it with that, that simple of a beat. It's just not the same song. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a good point. I think there's going to be a lot of these moments in this episode where you're going to say, Oh, the drum part here is, you know, different because, you know, we're used to nowadays, especially as metal guys as having very active drum parts. Yes. But Usually they're all it's all locked in with the guitar with the guitars yeah cuz cuz it's all we're in a post pantera you know time frame yeah <laughs> so that's that's how drums are constructed now but um yeah wow <laughs> it is just a giant drum fill yeah a lot of their songs seem like that are you are you listening to it right now i'm not i'm not listening to it right now i'm i'm listening to it in my head okay <laughs> So we get another banter here, and this is actually Roger Daltrey that's talking okay. about this one. And so that's when they introduce a song that we won't be talking about called Fortune Teller. But th- that is actually a pretty cool song. And that's one where both the live and the studio version are actually pretty ripping. Mm. But they had released that. I, I can't remember if it was an A side or a B side, but it wasn't on a record. Oh. It was like it was a standalone single. Mm-hmm. But you can listen to it on the expanded edition of The Who Sellout, which is oh. how it appears on the ranked playlist. Okay. So, yeah, the, the anytime that you hear the, the vocal kind of just yelling in the background, that's Keith. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he didn't have a microphone because he didn't do a whole lot of singing he has done some very sporadically the the two i would say famous instances are that are from the two rock operas in tommy he gets to play uncle ernie and specifically in tommy's holiday camp he kind of acts as this demented ringleader inviting everyone to come stay at the camp and learn from (laughs) guru master tommy and this is the same uncle that earlier in the uh, in the album was molesting Tommy when he was still mm. deaf and blind. Um, and then in Quadrophenia, he's playing the role of a retired gangster 
or a gang leader who is now a bellboy and has this like this very heavy cockney accent is complaining about his job and kind of that's a turning point in the story where um, the main character kind of realizes that you know the people that he used to look up to as rebels have now become integrated into servitude society kind of the person that he saw as the ultimate form of youth and rebellion is now working for the man in a in a scrub paying job hmm. and so um so that's usually the only time that Keith Moon will sing is in instances like that because he's he's never taking himself seriously enough to do like a legitimate vocal uh take He's usually he like anytime he does a vocal, it's always in some kind of comedic, uh, zany mood. So yeah, I said all that to say right. that in the stage banner, whenever you just hear kind of that voice that kind of cuts in with a quip, yeah, that's Keith yelling from behind his drum kit. Yeah, it's it. That's one of those things that from this record adds to the whole atmosphere of just like fun, you know. <laughs> and hey let's hang out and you know play some instruments and oh by the way there's like 20,000 people here you know yeah <laughs> the fun thing about watching their interviews is that they no one can ever talk for a long period of time without Keith having to kind of interrupt and just say something outrageous <laughs> like there's there's one interview where they're where they're talking and Keith just decides he's just going to take all his clothes off <laughs> Was was that uh, during the substances? Yes, it was all during the substances. What am I talking about? Yes, this was this was uh, in the mid seventies. That interview was. Wow. Yeah, he was he was kind of going downhill at that point. But still, that was just that was the frame of mind he was in. He had to kind of constantly be the class clown. He he had to constantly doing something interesting as well, which he's constantly doing stuff that's interesting on the drums. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's just the part of his personality coming just the way out he was. as, you know, as an instrumentalist. You know, you can you say you can tell a lot about a person by how they play their instrument, and I think that's very true. You know, people who um, are kind of more go-getters, are kind of more energetic people, are going to play their instrument that way. Yeah. So, and that's let's, what he does. Yeah. Let's go on to the next one. This is let's, going to be uh, straight from Tommy. This was not on a. Oh, I should mention that I can't explain was not on the orish, original version of Live at Leeds. And I think that that's okay. a shame. Yeah. And neither is this next one. Um, the Amazing Journey Sparks Medley. Ah, we got a medley on. Yes. So Amazing Journey has always been one of the centerpiece songs of Tommy. Okay. Um, it comes at, it comes pretty early. It's you would really say that this is the first big song of the album. Cause there's you've got the overture, which really isn't a song, it's just more of an introduction, even though it is like almost six minutes long. Yeah. It's not like it's not a full song. There's a couple of words in, but it's just setting the stage. And then you've got a couple of you I think you got two like songs that are less than two minutes. One of them was only like 30 seconds long where, um, and I guess we could really talk about what the story of Tommy is. Yeah. Why not? Cause it also will play into a song we're going to talk about later in the set. 
Um, Tommy is the title character in a story where his father went off to fight in World War One, and he was presumed missing, dead. His wife, um, Tommy's mom, she has him while he's gone. And um, that's kind of the, the first big iconic moment is when they sing, It's a boy, Mrs. Walker, it's a boy. And when the dad comes home and Tommy's already grown up a little bit, probably like age of two or three, he finds her in the act of um, cheating on him. Mm -hmm. And so in a fit of jealous rage, he kills the lover and Tommy witnesses it. Mm. And so both of the parents tell him, you didn't see anything, you didn't hear anything, and you won't say anything. Mm -hmm. And that, coupled with the trauma of what he just experienced, makes him deaf, dumb, and blind. So he's not that way from birth by a medical issue. It's all psychological. Okay. And so it's once that happens that Amazing Journey comes in. And it's about him kind of now entering this new realm of existence into what he calls vibration land, because that's the only way he can uh, interact with his world is by touch, because he has no sight, no hearing, and no voice. Mm -hmm. So the only way that he can communicate with his world is by touching things and feeling the vibrations of things. It's, It's the reason why he becomes so good at pinball is because that he feels the vibration of the machine and also why um, the music ends up becoming an important thing for him as well as he can feel the vibration of music. Hmm. So amazing journey is him beginning this new life of, um, of disadvantage and yet of new opportunity new opportunity what do you mean of just again kind of life at a different way Mm -hmm. because he he knows that he can't uh he can't or at least he doesn't believe he'll actually find out later that he can regain those senses um the that opening line deaf dumb and blind boy he's in a quiet vibration land strange as it seems his musical dreams ain't quite so bad hmm Ten years old with thoughts as bold as thought can be, loving life and becoming wise in simplicity. So the whole inspiration for Tommy was when um, Pete Townsend had a spiritual awakening. Um, He had had a bad trip on LSD where he kind of had an out-of-body experience and -hmm. decided I'm never going to do drugs again because that was the most terrifying moment of my life. Mm Mm-hmm. And he had come across this um, this religious guru. I can't remember what his name is. But he had taken a vow of silence and only communicated through um, sign language and written uh, communication. And just kind of the whole point being that um, everything is noise and that inner self inner communication is the true meaning of life Hmm. and just kind of going to getting rid of all of the 
all of the excess noise and um, just kind of going within yourself rather than trying to find answers without yourself from, mm -hmm. from outside, go mm -hmm. inside. And so that was kind of the inspiration for Tommy was to have this person that could not at all deal with his problems the way that everyone else did that he could only find the answers within himself hmm. and so the whole through a lot of Tommy even though he is being horribly abused by everything outside of him he continues to find this, this enlightenment inside of him because it's the only thing he can do he can't tell people to stop what they're doing to him. He, he doesn't even probably understand any of the world outside of him. Instead, he has this own world that he lives in that he understands in his own way. Mm -hmm. So that's what I mean by, you know, it's a, it's a disadvantage and yet it is an advantage. And so at the end of the story, when he finally does regain his, his senses, he becomes this this spiritual figure and he tries to help people to find what he had found when he had lost his senses that you can also attain inner peace and inner enlightenment wow that was like way more than he's good at pinball yes that's <laughs> really that because that song was an afterthought that was thrown in after the album was done because the a friend of his told him there's no single on it oh yeah so he went uh, again that's kind of the classic story with a lot of these episodes is you'll have that one huge hit that was written because they needed a single well i mean when when you put your mind to something and you're a good musician you can pretty much come up with whatever you want yeah unless you're you know way outside of your wheel well but if you're somebody like Pete Ten, Pete Ten Sound, good lord, <laughs> that's the second time I've said that. Pete Townsend, <laughs> you know, you could you can pretty much do whatever you need to. So, and he did. I mean, you know, later on with the keyboard stuff, you know, that was some pretty groundbreaking stuff. I would think. Oh yeah. So, so yeah, that was, that was that was all a lot of context to understand the center of what's Amazing Journey. That that was a lot of context to. Um, understand these tom roles yeah. mm -hmm. there's a whole lot in the beginning of the song and the yes. do 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 man and it's so weird that uh that keith moon during this song is kind of going crazy i mean for him and no one else is he's being normal but the rest of the band is just like la, 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 la. <laughs> yeah it's very it's it perfectly just continues to to uh, solidify that idea of just you've got the rest of the band is holding it together and Keith is the one that's that's providing a lot of the the musical complexity mm -hmm. I think that this live version is is much better than the studio version because when you listen to the studio version Roger's vocals are almost hushed and very restrained very falsetto sounding and I just don't think it sounds that good okay but when he sings here he's singing with that that authority and I think that it adds a much more interesting um, 
flavor to the song. Mm-hmm. It kind of it communicates that that excitement. Because again, the whole point of the song is that even though he's now in this in this handicapped state, he, in his opinion, he's now on an amazing journey. Come on the amazing journey and learn all you should know. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, and that's one half of this song. <laughs> yeah, so, um, so yeah, you've it turns into sparks when it goes into that bam bo da da dum blum blum bum do 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 and then that little jam they do that bam bam da 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 bam 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 oh that part is good so that's what sparks is um that is also something that's way more interesting here than it is on the original recording um cuz in that um, a lot of the guitars and drums are very restrained as far as just the way they're mixed. They're mixed kind of low and very soft sounding. Here it's just, it's loud, it's bold, it's right in your face. Right, I was about to say, very, very much in your face. Very, uh, like, it is very calculated. Like, they know what they're doing. You know, they're in tune with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, all, all three of the instrumentalists are in that whole section. Yeah. And also on the record, these two songs do go back to back. Oh, I, so okay. Do they so play really? Out like what that? it is is they're they're just playing those two songs without stopping, which I mean it is without stopping on the record too. I kind of don't know why they're split into different tracks. It should have just been like a, a seven minute track, like it is here live, and just be called "Amazing Journey." That might have been maybe a record label decision to go, hey, we want to make it look like there's more songs on here, mm-hmm. not intimidate people with large seven-minute songs. Mm-hmm. So make Amazing Journey five minutes and make Sparks two minutes. Mm-hmm. Sparks is an instrumental, right? Yes. I remember it being that. I was just making sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. Wow. An instrumental on a – well, I guess an instrumental on a um, – concept record isn't completely foreign no there's actually there's 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 a fair number of instrumentals on tommy really wow i mean well maybe not maybe not that i think there's like i think there's there's the i know for sure there's i i know for sure there's three there's the underture the overture and the overture is like no the the underture is like 10 minutes long oh wow very long um and then you've got sparks so you've got Overture, Underture, and Sparks. Um, those are the ones I know for sure are instrumentals. I'd have to look again, see if there's any others. I don't think there is, though. Hmm. Uh, Quadrophenia has two six-minute instrumentals. That's a lot of time for a 40-minute vinyl. Well, no, those are, those, they're both double records. Oh, okay. So they're, they've got about 80 minutes to work with. Even still, though. Well, yep. maybe, maybe not now. I would I would say on Quadrophenia, it's even more impressive because they are very economical with that time on that album. Mm. So yeah, I mean, I guess when you only have twenty minutes on each side, you know, you mm-hmm. have to fill that twenty minutes. Yeah. So. Um, we can go ahead and move on to the next one. Yes, the next is... one we're gonna have a lot to say about. D- despite the name, this this song is not a quick one. It is. In fact, almost nine minutes long. 
Her man's been gone. Yeah. Oh, that was tight. Yes, that... that's it's a very tight um, vocal harmony. So this is a quick one while he's away. This is the song that I was talking about in the first segment where they invented the multi-part yes. uh, suite mm-hmm. as far as in a rock and pop uh, category. He okay. actually, uh, Pete has called this his a mini opera, that this was his first foray into experimenting with that idea. So which record was this? Uh, on the second one. Oh, wow. So this was in 66. So this was kind of a crazy, this was a really crazy thing to do at that time. So this, and this is still is, kind of the mod time frame. Yes, and it is by and far the best song on that record. It was a pretty good song. And it's an incredible song. So what had happened was that they had finished making the record and their producer said, well, we still got 10 minutes of free space. We need to figure out what to put on it. And it was their manager that said, hey, you should write like a really big epic piece. And Pete was just like, I can't do that. I'm not that good of a songwriter. I can't write something that's 10 minutes long. He's like, well, why don't you just write like seven minute and a half segments and then just string them all together and he's like oh that's i could do that and thus here we are and i believe that it was through that that he had really kind of awakened something in him to go oh i actually like writing stuff like this i should do more of this Mm -hmm. you could you could really say that a lot of the songwriting um um grandiose um, ideas, the experimentation, the the boldness to write such big concepts came from writing a quick one. Wow. Yeah, and there are some pretty bold ideas in here. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. what's actually what we unfortunately we missed this because it's at the end of the previous song mm. is the banter right before this, where they actually canonize the fact that this song is about Tommy's parents. Oh. So now, of course, that was not planned when he wrote it, but it absolutely, because you you take the events of this song and the events at the very beginning of Tommy, and they match up just about perfectly. You could tell that, that, the, that this was a seed of an idea that eventually turned into Tommy in more ways than one, not just the fact that it's an opera, but this story beat as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so the whole story is about a man who's been gone for a long time he's expected to be home but he's late he was due home yesterday but he ain't here and she thinks that he has left her that something has happened to him she's sad and then comes Ivor the engine driver that dirty old sod <laughs> And he comes to cheer her up in more ways than one. Right. Right. He, she sat on his lap and then later with him had a nap, as she so um, delicately explains. Yeah. So he comes home. In this, it's not assumed that he caught her in the act because initially he's very excited to see her. Mm-hmm. And then she goes, well, I've got something to a, to confess. But then it goes into this very strange section of these you are forgiven 
parts. Mm-hmm. And when you turn to the fact that they say that this is Tommy's parents, it kind of takes on a much different meaning. It almost seems like he's, he's, you could say, imagine him saying that as he's killing Ivor. Kind of like, it's almost, it's almost, uh, like crazed and insane. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In fact, yeah. Pete would say that he would get into this manic state whenever he would do the you are forgiven parts when they're playing it live and the when they do it live it's actually much longer than it is on the recording oh wow like probably a full minute so um and and what pete has said about the inspiration for writing this song was that he was um in the position of the woman when he was a kid and that instead of waiting for a man to come home, he was waiting for his parents to come get him because he was always left at his grandmother's house mm-hmm. and his grandmother would constantly invite these strange men over to her house to have sex with. Mm-hmm. And he says that he can't confirm it, but he believes that something might've happened to him. That he might have been molested and that maybe his – the trauma of it was buried in his psyche. Mm-hmm. He says that he has dreams that something had happened, something where like his mind has has hidden it away. Mm-hmm. So that way he doesn't have to deal with the emotional uh, trauma that comes with that. Mm-hmm. And so the whole story is a metaphor to him waiting for his parents to come home. And that the you are forgiven was always him trying to forgive them and forgive himself. That's so sad. I know, because it's such a lighthearted, almost humorous story. Oh my gosh. It is. It's like the whole time, you completely changed this song for me in that explanation. Because this whole time I was thinking, oh, this is just like a dorky song. Like, oh, we're going to name the engine driver Ivor because it rhymes. And the then driver. we're going to do the, and we're going to, we're going to do the chugga, 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 you know, here's the train. Like, you know, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I mean, obviously they, at that time you could not openly talk about stuff like that. Right. And you couldn't be emotionally vulnerable like that and so it was probably definitely by necessity that if you're going to get away with writing about a concept like this you kind of have to make it jokey Mm. um but yeah i just i think that once you throw in the uh the perspective that it's tommy's parents i think that just again the you are forgiven is the murder that's occurring wow that's dark (laughs) yeah i know it's so dark. But it makes the song so fascinating. It does, yeah. Oh my gosh, this is like a... It's like a Muse Slayer moment of just like... It makes me uncomfortable, but I like that, you know? That yeah. it's just kind of like, huh, you know? Let's talk Let's talk about who sings each part, because it's constantly shifting lead vocalists. It is. So okay, have, let's talk have, about that. You have everyone singing together for the for the acapella intro um 
Roger Daltrey sings the uh, the second section, which is called Crying Town, where he's just he's he's detailing the sorrow that this that the little girl guide feels. Mm-hmm. Your your crying is heard throughout the land. Um, and then um, they all sing together for the third section. We have a remedy which is the perspective of her friends saying, we're so tired of hearing you cry all the time. We've got something that'll help you feel better. Now, once you get to that little spoken word in- intro, that's Pete Townsend. Why don't you stop your crying? Here comes Ivor, the engine driver, to make you feel much better. And then keep moving. So, yeah, <laughs> where he, he's the one that yells, dirty old sod. <laughs> <laughs> um, the fourth section, Ivor, is sung by John Entwistle. Oh, which, that's also just has become like one of my favorite hooks. My name is Ivor. I'm an engine driver. Mm-hmm. I I have sung that more than anything else in the set, just like throughout my day. Really, it's just it's such a it's so simple, and it's almost like schoolyard simple yeah and yet it just it it works yeah so let's have a smile for an old engine driver you got the the incredibly fast keith moon drums during this and also oh that's true and the bass is really powerful through this too Mm mm-hmm um, and then you've got the soon be home, which is sung by Roger and Pete. Mm-hmm. And then I love when they get to it's where they're saying bang, bang, which I think is a great double entendre because he's banging on the door and she's banging something else. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that whole last section is sung by Pete. And with the where they're reunited. And then, of course, everyone comes in for the You Are Forgivens. And Pete does the falsetto forgiven? No, and... so that's John Entwistle doing that. Oh. Oh, yeah. And so that is, was that was is... when I was watching specifically a live video of this song. That's when I realized, I was like, oh, he's doing all the high harmonies. Wow. So is, is Roger during the last section? Is he... Well, yeah, he's he's coming in with some of the some of the lower stuff, but yeah, all the high stuff is being done by John. Hmm. So, so yeah, I mean, there's there's a whole lot going on in this song, but I but I think it's just it's so well written, and it just, really is a and again so revolutionary first time again, 1966. Mm-hmm. To put together something that ambitious, that was pretty impressive. So, I think we'll go ahead and move on to the next one because, oh man, we—you thought that one was long. Yeah, here we here we go with a uh, uh, nightmare to remember length uh, track. Fifteen minutes, my yes. generation. My generation. Now, of course, there is way more happening here than my generation. Yeah, there's there's a whole instrumental improvised section that just it really I think that shows that they are very much a hive mind 
mm-hmm. they they understand what each other's thing. But anyway, we got to talk about you know my generation, which yes. you know they are talking about their generation. Mm-hmm. So for many people, this is the definitive Who song. Really, it was their first hit. And Rolling Stone magazine, when they did their list of 500 greatest songs, I think they put it at like number 11. Oh my! And what what album was this on? On the very first one, because the uh, name of that album was also My Generation. Oh right, right. Um, this was the song that put them. I mean, I can't explain. Was a hit. I think it like went to number seven on the UK charts. Um, but my generation was kind of the song that really cemented them as like newcomers to watch. And as time has gone on, it's proven to be one of the most rock songs probably ever written. Because again, like I said, it, it contains the first ever bass solo. It's really the song that introduces Keith Moon as a powerhouse drummer. Yeah. Um, and you've that, got that dynamical flow, that quick dynamics during mm-hmm. that you know, talking about my generation and then there's yeah. you know, the verse where it's very quiet and big again. Yeah. You've got the very rebellious, controversial lyrics. <laughs> I mean, pretty much the whole song is just about fighting against the previous generation. The old generation doesn't understand them. And so because of that, we're going to fight back against you. I hope I die wow. before I grow old. What a, wow. what a line that has continued to be it's continued to resonate mm-hmm. and something that sadly would be a bit prophetic specifically with keith moon but really at that time none of the of the rock guys had died this was still very early on i mean i guess you could say technically buddy holly did but he was part of the previous generation yeah there you go that first wave of rock and so that wasn't something that was even considered really a reality yet strangely and darkly prophetic for 1965 because many of them would die before they grow old. Mm -hmm. Um, And then of course you've got that, you've got that stuttering that, that really incredible moment of why don't you all fade away? (laughs) Yeah. When I first heard that, I'm like, Oh, don't say it. Don't say it. But it's like, that was, that was such a good choice. Yeah. To keep it, clean but at the same time really let them know what you think talking about my generation (laughs) could also be taken as something else exactly that's that's true too Um, yeah this yeah this song originally people wanted to ban it oh it was it was because i mean obviously you've got those you've got those little things that they're insinuating with those stutters right um, I mean, that was just, again, talk about pushing the envelope in 65. That was yeah. probably up to that point, maybe the most controversial song ever made. This was before, really, the Stones started to get really controversial with some of their stuff. Hmm. That was, this song was a, was a big old middle finger. So, again, yeah. this was, this was the song that really set the standard for rock and roll rebellion. There hadn't been a real good rock rebellion song written until my generation. So they kind of went metal on us. Yeah. <laughs> it was definitely this was this was as heavy as it got at that time. And it's still very mod. <laughs> yes. So that's the saying again, those times when they 
when they kind of let them be themselves, even when they were still writing in that style. It's still pretty they, good. Yeah, they were they were doing something completely new. Yeah, that's true. So yeah, for you you ask a lot of Who fans what the greatest Who song is. There's a good amount of them that'll say it's My Generation, just because it's a it is a song that changed rock and roll forever. I mean, I think that they have written better songs. Although I would say this is still a top ten song. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely understand the reasoning of yeah. why people I used to not understand it but then when I kind of really looked at it and read some critiques and analysis of it I was just like okay I I understand why mm-hmm. so and there's even some moments in here that almost sound like um, oh uh, I can see for miles yeah because they they keep having that uh, those really tight I think three part harmonies you know mm-hmm. um and it's very pop, I guess, but it's still got that who spin on it, you know, very much like I can see for miles. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, they pretty much play my generation fairly close and faithful to the original. Mm-hmm. But then it's after that, that, that's when it gets into the real big meat of this track. So the first place we go to is to another place from Tommy. Okay. And what it does is it actually goes to the very end of the album, to the last half of We're Not Gonna Take It. When he goes into the see me, feel me, touch me. So that's, again, correlating to his his deaf, dumb, and blind. Blind, see me, um, touch me, hear me, feel me. Um, at this point, though, in the story, he's regained all that stuff. And so what it can be shown as is that he's now appealing to that higher power. Now that the people in this mortal world can see him and feel him and hear him, he's now asking for that higher power to see him. Kind of going now to the existential. Hmm. And then it goes into the um, into the final big part, which is that, that great... Um, um that great section of the um right behind you i see the millions on you i see the glory from you i get opinions from you i get the story on tommy that's a fade out and that's how the way that record ends that's such an an anthemic and powerful chorus yeah yeah it's got it's got a very strong full-on chord progression yeah listening not to something you. that's really prevalent in this set yeah i'd say they're very riff based mm-hmm. yeah and i've seen other clips of them doing this this song and they just they do it over and over and each time they play it bigger and bigger and bigger and when they played at woodstock this was the song that they closed with wow so this whole medley or that no, just when because they because they did Tommy in its entirety at Woodstock, ah. and so they ended with it. And of course, they just they they took it all the way to the end at the very end. They smash their guitars, destroy the drum set, and then run off stage. <laughs> and have the roadies pick it up. 
Yep. Well. <laughs> oh boy. All right, where do, where do we go after that? So after that, we uh, go into um, a prelude to what was going to be the next concept record that actually got scrapped and became Who's Next. Um, okay. Who's Next was supposed to be a concept record called uh, Lifehouse. Oh, right. I remember this. Yeah. And just the concept was too abstract that Pete really, really believed in it. But the more he tried to explain it to people, the more there's like, man, I just I don't get it. Oh, man, you should have done it. Well, he he eventually got to the point where I was just like, I got to a point where I felt like I didn't even understand it. And I was just like, I don't want to scrap this all together because these songs are so good. Probably the best we've ever made. But I just, I don't think I'm going to be able to satisfyingly put it together in a story. But one of the uh, songs that actually did not make it onto Who's Next, but has kind of lived on as a, um, as a great rare track is called Naked Eye. And that's what they go into when he's going, so, so, very long. Kind of that that more slow bluesy jam part. Mm-hmm. So that's that comes from uh, Naked Eye, which was going to be part of the overall concept, but got ended up getting scrapped. And then a lot of the instrumental jamming that comes after that comes from uh, back from Tommy because again you hear that reprise of that. Uh, of that sparks melody that so they they return back to that which i found fit well into having both amazing journey and this long medley on this set it kind of gives it a little bit of cohesion mm-hmm. and then um we go into another uh, rare track that um, is not played too often with coming out to get you. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of it, um, it goes into uh, a piece called driving four, which honestly just sounds like a ripoff of the Batman theme. Well, I mean, you know, which, <laughs> which they actually have done a legitimate cover of the Batman theme. Was that before or after this? Before. That makes sense. Because that was the first thing I thought. It was just like, are they playing the Batman theme right now, but just like changing it a little bit? Because it's the same idea. And then after that, when I was going through and doing all the rankings on uh, the expanded reissue of a quick one, there's like a minute and a half version of them covering the Batman theme. And it's like they're actually singing Batman and like it's just meant they kind of did it just as a joke. But I was just like, they totally did this because they had already done it before. That's actually kind of cool. Yeah. Man. So yeah, this is, and then and then you just get that the big ending at the end, right? So, and there's like some down sections in there. It sounds like yeah, where just... you can tell that this is the improvised part where they're just kind of letting, like, 
I have a feeling that they knew they were going to go to all these parts. It's just how they're going to get there. Yeah, they just, they didn't, you know, they're going to kind of, I bet their plan was, okay, we'll take it down and then, you know, Pete, you do whatever you want. You can kind of noodle around a little bit, but then when you go into the rift, that's when we know that we're going to the next part. And and the audience kind of followed along. I mean, they never, when when they lost volume, the audience didn't, like, try to fill the space so you couldn't hear them. Yeah. You know, they were, they were very respectful. They are like, ooh, what's he going to do next, you know? They understood that it wasn't over. Right, right, right. And then when they get to the end of the song, you know, of course, there's a eruption of applause and, you know, this this understanding that, you know, the band knows what they're doing and they're going to take you somewhere that you don't expect and it's going to be very rewarding. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the audience goers, I think, knew what they are getting into. Yes. And, you know, obviously us listening back now over and over again, we know what we're getting into um, each time. Yeah. And I think that's that level of trust that you have with a, with a band, I guess, kind of tells you a lot about, you know, how good the band is live. If your audience trusts you, then you're good. You know, people, people don't blindly trust or, well, I should say people tend not to do that. So, and then of course, at the end of the, of the 15 minutes of wonderfulness, there is the applause for, you know, about a minute or so. Yeah. You could definitely feel that that was probably the end of the main set. Mm Mm-hmm. And that the next song was going to be the encore. That's that's what I that's what I felt like because I think you can hear like somebody chanting one more or something, mm-hmm. and he goes, "Well, this is the nicest thing that anybody's ever done for us." And then and then he introduces our final song. Yes, too much magic bus. Magic bus, and what is what does he say exactly? Because. Too much it, magic bus. No, no. When he introduces it, he's like, "It's the, it's the lucky number thirteen of somebody." Well, he's he was saying it reached number lucky number thirteen on the charts. Ah, uh, okay. So yeah, he. This was this was a song that was not on one of their records. This was a standalone single, but of the early. Uh, career. This was kind of one of their more prominent hits, but this version has definitely come to be the definitive version of this song. Mm-hmm. So um, it's it's really got just a very fun atmosphere. Because I was I was just like, it could have been very easy to put my generation as the last song, just because it's so big and so epic in scale. Mm-hmm. But then I was then I heard Magic Bus because this, as you notice, that this is the one time in our set that he, they actually introduced the right song. Yeah, yeah. So this is the natural ending. Like on the original vinyl, it's the only thing on side two is this monstrous version of My Generation and Magic Bus. Wow. So um, this this was meant to be the ending of the set, always. Um, and I just felt like that this was just, it kind of almost takes us a little bit back full circle. Yeah, I would say definitely it does. Fun, jam, still got some really crazy moments, but not in the way, and I feel like it kind of 
refreshes a little bit and kind of livens the mood up after right. just again that that medley is so big and so long it can almost exhaust you right and i was just like i feel like it it fits well to just have this fun jam at the very end that right. still my, ends in a satisfying way. My generation kind of ends in a completely different place than the rest of the set really was. I mean, even from a quick one, it's completely different. Yeah. But Magic Bus brings us right back to, you know, the the fun jam atmosphere, but they're still good musicians. You know, yeah. there's that spot in the middle where it's kind of, Almost like they're they're laughing at each other, just having fun with the music. You know? uh-huh. Laughing with each other, I should say. You and can definitely feel this being a great audience participation song. Yeah, it, that's something that you like to hear, even. You know, even though we obviously weren't there, um, you can kind of get that feeling of being with the audience. Mm-hmm. It, and they did a really good job. You know, whoever was done doing the sound engineering did a great job of capturing that feeling. Yeah, they and, did. And I would say that that this one and a quick one both are very, very good at, at capturing that feeling of being there with the band. Uh-huh. So this was actually one of the first songs that they ever wrote. But they actually, they, they wrote it in 65, but they didn't mm-hmm. record it until 68. Oh, wow. It's kind of one of those songs they they just shelved for a while, and then yeah, and then brought it out and actually ended up being a pretty good single for them. That's good. I mean, it sounds like you know someone says it goes thirteen on the charts. That's still like considered very good. Yeah, you are considered successful by your label if you can get to the top twenty. Right now, you're considered unsuccessful if you are consistently doing top 10, top five, and then go down to 13. But when you're starting out and you're getting up to that level, that's considered really good. Yeah. So this was definitely one of their major hits of the 60s era. Mm-hmm. I, I like the part in this song where they're like um, kind of arguing over how much the bus is going to be. Like, yeah. No. Too much. 95. Uh, you can have the magic bus for 100 English pounds. Like you could, you could tell that probably they are, they were trick. They were going to say dollars. And yeah. then they, they switch it back. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, the whole song is just about, it's really, it's nonsense lyrics pretty much. The whole point mm-hmm. is that the lyrics are supposed to drive the song. Right. It's just a vehicle. Again, bus puns. Um, just he he takes this bus to go see his girl, and he goes to see her so much that he's just like, I might as well just buy the bus. And the bus driver's like, No, you can't buy my bus. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. It is. It's. That's like one of those songs that you can't write today. Because no. there's no climate for it. Like people want more serious music. Yeah, or or something that tells a story. Or really, uh, the lyrics are just as nonsense today. But there's just not the the cool, fun atmosphere. It's, it's not as gimmicky. It's not as you know. Hey, let's write a song about a bus and people 
trying to buy it, you know? Yeah, what makes this bus so magical? I don't know. <laughs> exactly. Right. So, I don't know. It's good to, to look back at old music. I guess that's kind of the point of, you know, this whole podcast is looking back at old music and seeing what was special about something, I guess, wow, like 50 years ago now. So, um, anyway, I guess that's the that's the set. Yeah, let's talk about the way that this ends. Yes. So yeah, you you do get the feeling throughout this that it's just like, well, because you know we have to end with our catharsis moment, right? It almost kind of fools you into thinking, well, maybe the catharsis moment was the previous song, and this is just like a fun little epilogue. Mm-hmm. But man, they end this song in a huge, powerful way. I mean, when when Roger just screeches out that last magic bus and then goes into that huge trash can, that's 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 the moment that you wait for that whole set. Mm-hmm. It's almost like he lost his voice going way up there. Probably, because <laughs> you also got to think. Pro- it's likely that the real chronological timeline of the set, if they were also doing all of Tommy. Yeah, probably my generation. They 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 snuck in with some editing, some parts from Tommy, like the "See Me, Feel Me" section, because it wouldn't make sense for them to do extended parts of Tommy and then go do Tommy in its entirety. But it's likely that they they did the normal set, did Tommy, and then the 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 big ending was my generation and Magic Bus. So that's like just about two hours worth of hardcore rock singing. Yeah, wow. So yeah, I don't blame him at all if he lost his voice there. No, I don't, I don't blame him either. I'm just saying, like, man, he is, like, he's putting it all out on the stage. Mm-hmm. You know? And so is Keith Moon, man. And so is Keith Moon, yeah. Well, Keith Moon doesn't have a voice to lose, so... Well, he's got hands to lose. That's true. He is, I mean, yeah, he's just, he's giving it everything he's got. And he's got more to give than most. Yeah, that is true. That is and just, true. I love that it, we can finally get that fade out at the end. Where it does feel like, okay, we're definitively done with the set. Yeah. Instead of. Oh hey, we're gonna play Magic Bus and oh, end of the six songs. You know? I know that would it wouldn't have felt right. It wouldn't have felt right. This one, this one, you kind of knew when the set was over because you had that long applause and then it was just it was done. It was mm-hmm. good. It was good. All right, it so we'll go ahead. Complete. We'll go ahead and take another break here. When we come back, we're gonna give our final thoughts about the booze. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. It's so sad that Ethan's not here to introduce this section, so it's going to fall back to me. Uh, We just finished talking about our songs from the uh, Live at Leeds album by The Who, and those songs were um, Young Man Blues, I Can't Explain, Amazing Journey, A Quick One While He's Away, my generation and magic bus. I was trying to think. Yeah. You put the set together. Come on. <laughs> I know. Ethan was just so good at just rattling them off. Yeah. He was probably yeah. also looking at them and I wasn't. Yeah. 
Uh, so now it's time to give our final thoughts about the Who. So Grant, you started at a four. That's not a very um, not a very generous place to be at. Has I that did, changed? I did because obviously I have a prejudice against you know, and it's unconscious, but I'm well, it, it's subconscious, but I'm aware of it. Uh, being against you know music of that era, but I did in preparation for this episode. I obviously listened to the first. Um, who episode and I gained some appreciation from the stories there um, I went and listened to obviously the songs from that episode the songs from this episode I listened uh, listened wow listened all the way through um, who's next and I really liked that um, there's some really great moments on that record um, and I think that like I don't know I feel like I get this way at the end of every episode of a band that's really good i always say you know i'm a seven now because like i can't go to an eight but i feel like i have enough to be able to say that i'm an eight like i have enough yeah because you kind of did a little extra right because i did a little bit of extra i don't know if i would necessarily say i'm an eight right i think that if i was like super falling in love with everything i would i'd be an eight i'm not super falling in love with everything because obviously some of this stuff is very mod you know, and that's that's the part of me that's prejudiced against this era of music. Mm. Doesn't like the cookie cutter uh, music, but man, it's it's a strong seven. If it isn't an eight, it's a strong seven because there were some really interesting arrangements in this set, and then of course, like the other stuff that I listened to. You know, all the way through Who's Next, there were some great great moments. Um especially the ones that were featured on last episode. So anyway, all I have to say is if you're listening to this episode and you haven't listened to our first two episodes, definitely go listen to that and definitely go listen through who's next. You might find some stuff that you didn't know you like. So, and that's kind of the whole point of this podcast is to open your mind to new music. So I'd say strong seven. My favorite one is probably a quick one because it was just, it was, it was funny. You know, I I kind of like a, a gimmicky song. So that's why I like I Think I'm Going Bald. So even though even though you say that's one of the worst Rush songs, it, it holds a special place in my heart. So, well, <laughs> that just soured my mood. <laughs> OK, well, no, we'll no, sour your mood with your final thoughts. Oh, man. The Who. I started off at a solid eight. I would say I've moved up to a nine at this point. Yeah, that sounds they, right. Um, I definitely feel like I understand them thoroughly at this point. I understand what makes them so special and so unique. And it's, I think the things that make you have to get to those nines and tens have to be if they're if something about them is going to start seeping into you as a musician yeah i feel like that has happened oh i definitely think that has happened before this episode yes but i think it's happened in a strong even stronger uh a stronger way this time really being inspired just by pete townsend's just ambition yeah his his way of again creating songs that are quite simple 
and yet have such deep layers to them mm-hmm. that he can communicate these really deep ideas and musical ideas that in such simple ways I think is is very inspiring to me. It's kind of made me wonder, maybe I could write my own little rock opera. You know, I was just thinking that the other day. I'm like, man, if Lucas wrote some music, it'd probably be pretty good. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. I've never tried before, but, you know, <laughs> first time for everything. I think I think you got the musical knowledge to be able to to pull some things out of thin air, you know. Maybe. Well, well maybe we'll see. Maybe there'll well, be a, a good music album that'll come out someday. <laughs> Maybe we'll have to do an episode if you release music. You know, special, special. How narcissistic edition. would that be? We're going to do I, an episode you know on ourselves. I would recommend if you release music. I would recommend you for the Good Music Podcast. Well, oh man, you're really trusting that I can make something good. <laughs> or maybe the Bad Music Podcast, depending on how it turns out. Yeah, yeah, could be. <laughs> I also have to agree that a quick one is the best one. Yeah, it's just it's on a bit of a different level. It is. Um, Harry's pick. Harry also is going with a quick one. Really? He loved that song. Man. I figured it was going to be like, I can't explain or something. Uh, I would say, I would actually say that his runner up is Amazing Journey. Man. He loved, now he did love I Can't Explain. I would say those were like his top three. Um, amazing journey he asked for quite a bit but anytime you asked him what's your favorite who song first he would say it's who are you Uh, (laughs) but then after that he would say a quick one and that's also that's also Callie's pick whenever I I showed her the set she was just like yeah a quick one's the best one it's just got so many memorable moments in it. It does. There's so many great hooks that just get stuck in your head. I also find myself going, soon be home, soon be home. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's it's so well written. Now let's talk about landed on the ranked playlist. Ooh, that's a good point. Let's do that. Um, I, gotta, I gotta find every, I think everything is right here. I, I bet my generation is is the top of this list, but I don't know. We'll we'll find out here in about thirty seconds. Now, with some of these, I'm also ranking the studio versions. I won't. Next time that I do a Who episode, I'll start ranking different versions of songs. But just for the sake of my sanity, I have to go with the official versions of everything. Okay. Now, again, with something like Young Man Blues, where the only official version is the live version, then that does make it on there um i i think everything is on here as far as going from studio versions magic bus is actually what ranks the lowest oh because again you you lose you do lose a lot of that jam aspect after that would be amazing journey oh and that was at um magic bus was at 14 amazing journey at 13 I actually didn't plan this, but like a lot of these songs are right here in order. So Magic Bus 14, Amazing Journey, I Can't Explain 12, Young Man Blues at 11. Wow. And then My Generation at number nine and a quick one at number seven. Really? Mm-hmm. I would have put My Generation like way up. 
I mean, the, all the all the other songs are so good. I guess that it, means that they have such a strong. They have such a strong discography. Yeah, like uh, also talking about the songs from our first episode. They're all in the top <laughs> ten. Behind That's Blue true. Eyes is number ten. Who Are You's number six. Pinball Wizards number five. I can see for Miles at four. Baba O'Reilly at number two, and Won't Get Fooled Again at number one. That's true. Won't get fooled again. Better be number one. But questions: What's that number three? Hmm. We'll have to talk about that in our next party. Our third Who episode's going to be. Ooh, you say that every volume two. You're like, I know what our volume three is going to be. Well, yeah, I usually do. I'll I'll even go ahead and spoil it because I won't tell you when it's going to happen though. Next time we're going to focus purely on Quadrophenia. Ooh, see, that's about where I was going to go after this episode, was listening through Quadrophenia. Yeah. It just, is that... I like a good concept record, you know? It's a great record. It's it's another one where you could make an argument that maybe that's their best record. <sighs> Man. And I think as far as the two rock operas go, I think that Quadrophenia is slightly better. Uh, so maybe we should start with Tommy and then move up to Quadrophenia. Me, me, yeah, my me recommendation... Is if you're gonna go listen to a Who record right now, well, first I would say listen to all of Live at Leeds because it's okay. really great. But then listen to Tommy because those two records, Leeds and Tommy, are very much woven together. Mm-hmm. So that's your next logical conclusion is go listen to Tommy. And then Quadrophenia. Yeah. But yeah, that's that's what I'm thinking we'll do for the next one. So. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. If you like what you listen to, make sure to hit that subscribe button. And um, we have new episodes every Monday at midnight. I know our intro still says nine. We might have to record a new intro at some point. <laughs> Maybe. Um, but for, they're they're coming out at midnight. Next week, we are going to be moving into the 80s. And talking about uh, one of the best pop groups of all time. So if you like the 80s, or even if you don't like the 80s, you should still check it out. It's going to be a lot of fun. This is an episode where we're really going to miss Ethan, because I think that this is something that he's going (laughs) to... He would have been all over. Oh, yeah. But I think that I can turn you into a fan, Grant. Oh, I don't think it's going to take very much. I mean, I already know who it is. Because we're not doing the surprise thing anymore. So. <laughs> but it's a surprise for all of our listeners. So. It is a surprise for all the listeners. So make- be sure to be there. Yeah. And then uh, make sure you follow us on social media, on Instagram and Facebook. And um, that's the best place to contact us about what artists you want us to cover in the future. And... Um, oh, yeah. Go to our Patreon page where there is a... You can get access to episodes early as well as get access to our Bad Music Podcast segment. It's always a lot of fun. Uh, the Who has has some bad songs, so it, <laughs> that's right. It's going to be right. worth a listen. And we're we're going there right now, so. so you want to make sure that you be... check that out. And also make sure you check out these songs. There's a link in the description of the episode that takes you to a Spotify playlist. Please, even if you've heard these songs before, listen to them in the order we've put them in. It'll 
perhaps give you a new perspective on these songs. I know it's happened to Grant many times before. It has happened. Man, man in the mirror. <laughs> yep. That'll that be kind of the, our go-to one for that example. That's the epitome. So. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Well, that's it. I'm Lucas. I'm Grant. Keep on listening to good music.